People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got a full show today, and we're starting off with a visit from Tracy Schwarzer from Jonathan Ball Publishers, who's a regular on the show. And she's got a fabulous list of books that she's going to be talking about. So I'm going to hand you straight over. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always wonderful to come in. Um, the first one that I wanted to talk about, which was a sort of last minute slip in, actually, is our Booker win for the fourth year in a row, which is very exciting. Um, this time it's a Faber and Faber published book. Um, it's a novel by Anna Burns called Milkman. And I don't know if, it, uh, you know, if you follow the Booker Prize, if you saw the judges announcing the prize on the night, I think they may be, they may be disadvantaged, dear Anna, a little bit by saying that it was a challenging read, I think, I think was the word that they used. But it really isn't. It's a, it's a fabulous page turner, but a page turner written in a very distinctive voice. It's set in the late 70s in an unnamed town, but you're aware immediately that the town is Belfast and it's during the Troubles. And the central character is an 18-year-old. She's actually remembering the time in her life. And she has, as I say, the most wonderfully distinct voice. And it is her story of being different in this violent, politically charged, polarized city. And she's marked out as being different in one respect because she reads books while she's walking. In fact, the first one that she's reading is Ivanhoe, um, which is the name of my mother-in-law's house. I was, I was drawn in immediately. Um, and in a world that is polarized and violent, the last thing you want to do is stand out. But she she does, and she becomes the focus of the milkman who works for the IRA and intelligence, basically, although obviously it doesn't say IRA because this is an unnamed place at an unnamed time. It does have that dystopian-type feel to it. But he starts stalking her, essentially, and it's her story of... A very sort of short period of time. It it doesn't cover a lot of ground, the book, but it is an extraordinary voice. And if you don't be put off by the judges having said it was a challenging read, it's not a challenging read. It's a distinct voice that once you hear, you won't stop reading. So do give Anna Burns a shot. Um, it's doing particularly well in the UK. It was already the second top selling title on the shortlist prior to the announcement. And Anna herself had been living on um, food stamps and on welfare. She was the sort of archetypal writer who locked herself in you know, a tiny basement room to finish her novels. So this has been an extraordinary windfall for her, not just because her talent has been recognized, but because she hopefully can earn a little bit of money from it, too. So that's the Booker Prize winner this year from Faber, Anna Burns's The Milkman. And then I wanted to move on to cheerful Christmassy titles. Every year at Jonathan Ball, we run our own Christmas promotion or festive season promotion called Fantastic Festive Reads. 
And the prize, if you buy one of the books and then go to our website to enter, is a trip to the Franschhoek Literary Festival. Flights are paid for, car hire is paid for, accommodation is paid for, and tickets to a selection of events is paid for. So look out for the fantastic Festive Reads titles to win a trip to Franschhoek, but also because they're wonderful titles. And the first one which I'm very lucky actually to have a copy in my hand because it's only releasing on Monday officially in stores, is Sisonke Simang's The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. Now, Sisonke was the author of Always Another Country, which for me is one of the most beautiful pieces of nonfiction, beautiful memoirs to come out of South Africa in easily the last decade, she has an extraordinary way with words. She's an incredible author. There's poetry in her storytelling. And in Resurrection of Winnie Mandela, what Sisonke is trying to do is not to cover ground that 491 days covered, to look at Winnie's life, her rise, her fall, her subsequent rise, and... Who Who is she? Um, who is the myth? Who is the woman? Where did she come from? And oh, it is just, I actually have to read you a couple of passages. I've been doing terrible things to my copy. I've actually been highlighting it with a highlighter because the words are just so beautiful. So I just want to read a couple of sentences so you get an idea of Sisonke's genius. Um, this is now she's talking about Winnie's childhood in, B- in Bizana. From your very first heartbeat, you live at the intersection of everything ancient in the water and the land and the sea and the sky and the trees and all that is yet to be. You have one foot in the old ways and the other in the new. You are mud and you are brick. You are thatch and yes, you are also steel. And I think also, so that's the end of the quote there. But I think that's what Sisonke is trying to come to terms with personally herself, that Winnie was this incredibly complex character, as we all are, carrying so many contradictions. You're good, you're bad, you're the mother of the nation, you're a demon, you're a, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a struggle hero, you are a powerful woman, you are a fallen woman, you are a, I, and she's all of those things, and we can hold contradictions in our hearts and our heads because we hold them ourselves. And just a couple more sentences because it is so beautiful. Um, now, this is during the time that Winnie was exiled to Brantford. And it's just such a beautiful sentence. If we zoom out from your house, we see a street full of houses all the same. All of them too small to hold the dreams of those inside them. And then at the very end, your parting from Nelson signals a new chapter for the country. Nelson Mandela is redeemed and Madiba, the elder statesman, is born. The man melds into the myth. In the years to come, through your love for one another, Though your love for one another never fades, you will become his foil. You will be the dark shadow that allows him to be the shining light. It's, it is just beautiful. And if you read one book about Winnie Mandela, please pick up Sisonke's Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. Then, 
Oh, you see, I'm going to be doing lots of reading today, actually. So this is another title on the Fantastic Fest of Reads list, and it's a collection of poetry by a guy named Atticus. And the title of the book is The Dark Between Stars. Now, if last year and the year before you bought Rupi Kaur and you were blown away by her profundity and very few words, Atticus is very much the same as Rupi in that he is an Instagram poet, a social media poet. He writes, I'm, I'm sure if you are on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, somebody will have shared on their page at some stage one of Atticus's poems. And he's quite a mysterious character. He's never revealed his name in all of his profile fi- pictures. He's wearing a mask. Um, all we know about him is he lives in California. And very beautiful, short little snippets. And this particular collection is about being broken as a person, but somehow for that breaking to be letting the light in. Um, And this one particularly, I have a daughter who's having trouble at school at the moment with friends. And I think she's at that age where bullying is, it's just, it's just rife. It's, yeah. And I grew up with that, my parents saying to me, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you. And I always thought, well, that, that really isn't true at all. And I, when I read this particular poem, I thought, oh, wow. And I did read it to my little Ava. Words will scratch more hearts than swords. And that, that literally is just the poem. She wasn't looking for a knight. She was looking for a sword. Life had broken her but she was still there persisting in the shards of her broken pieces. I knew she was really sad when she stopped wishing on shooting stars. So they're beautiful words. And if you loved Rupi Kaur, if you bought Rupi Kaur for a present for somebody December last year, they will love Atticus. We'll be back with more books. So far we've seen The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela and then um, The Dark Between Stars. We'll be back with more from Tracy after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've joined in the studio for the first half of today's show by Tracy from Jonathan Ball. And uh, we are going through a beautifully curated list of books that are holiday reading, interesting reading, icons of the nation, uh, powerful words in poetry from uh, a social media phenomenon. We've got more. Yes, we do. And I'm only two books in. I always talk too much. (laughs) We enjoy it. (laughs) Um, So the next one I wanted to chat about, and partly because my daughter picked up the previous edition of this one. So now Ava is nine. And... My son had gone through a stage where he loved reading Guinness Book of World Records and, you know, those, the Ripley's Believe It or Not. And Ava picked this one up and this appealed to her far more than those, despite the fact that it wasn't pictorial and shiny. Um, it is the latest in the series of QI Facts books. Um, so QI, the BBC show that used to be hosted by Stephen Fry and is now hosted by Sally Toxvig. And it's a collection of fantastic, amazing facts. And it's just a really fun book to dip into. I call them bathroom books, but now I can call them books for the kids too. 
So this is 2,024 QI facts to stop you in your tracks. And some of them are genuinely mind-blowing. I Well, I love following QI on Twitter. I, I, I love the show. And I, just a couple here. There's the Pope drives a blue Ford Focus. I thought he drove a fancy Pope mobile, but he drives a Ford Focus. Um, and I did quite like that one of the moons of Uranus is called Margaret. It's <laughs> a very austere name when you have the moons of Jupiter named after the wives. <laughs> <laughs> Jupiter slash Zeus and Uranus has got Margaret um, and that candy floss was invented by a dentist and nobody knows who named the earth they just, it's really fun to dip into, they're fun to read as a family, it's a great gift and as I say I, my kids are really loving them, so that's QI facts and they're put together by the producers of QI and the QI elves and then the last of Fantastic Festive Reads that I just quickly sort of wanted to run through because they're books that we've spoken about previously, but to say that Washington Black, the fabulous novel that I had kind of had my heart set on winning the booker, but now I'm delighted for Anna Burns. But yes, so there was Washington Black. Please do pick it up. Fabulous novel um, set in the 1840s about the life of a slave on a sugar plantation in Barbados that oh, that's just the very beginning the very smallest of beginnings and then the psychology of time travel which was a wonderful time traveler's wife type novel about four women in the 1960s just a really wonderful read and then to Obama with Love, Joy, Hate and Despair, which was the curated collection of letters sent to Obama over the course of his tenure that he replied to every night before he went back to sleep or before he went to sleep. Then I wanted to quickly look at some of the new releases, as in just released now, mostly on the local side. Um, and the first one is just such a treat. It's... Graham Viney's The Last Hurrah. Um, it's non-fiction, history, set in South Africa in 1947 when the royal family, King George and the princesses at that stage, came out to South Africa in 1947, ostensibly to thank the South Africans for their involvement in World War II. And they did this really crazy long trip around South Africa, flying, driving, but mainly traveling by a traveling by train. And it was a specifically made train. It was a white train, a third of a mile long. And in the train were the the dog trainers, the equerries, the ladies in waiting. And funny, the rooms themselves, the state rooms, looked quite austere, not vastly different from the cabins that I went on or went in on trips down to Cape Town when I was 18, 19. Um, but it's the story of a world that doesn't exist anymore, but a world that is strangely familiar because it is at a time of immense 
change. So it's 1947. It's the last year of Union Party rule in South Africa. The National Party is about to come in. It is a time of heightened tension as a result of that. Um, you know, the, the world is different after World War II. You have all of these men returning home so damaged, so broken. And there was such uncertainty in the world at the time. I think it, mirroring the changes the world is going through today. And through it all, in the last hurrah, is this white train traveling through the hinterland. And they, uh, Queen Elizabeth was actually here for her 21st birthday and apparently holds South Africa very dear in her heart because they were allowed to be freer here than they were ever allowed to be in the UK. So they're beautiful photographs of the princesses riding horses on a beach in, horse, in East London and them going to have a meeting with Albert Latuli, stopping off in teeny tiny little towns. And in many ways, actually, this royal train trip seems to have been almost like a South African 1995 Rugby World Cup moment in that for a moment in time, everybody was united in excitement by the idea that the king, queen and princesses were in town. And people went out by the thousands to watch the train speeding through town, sometimes making unexpected stops at nine o'clock at night. And it's, it's just a really, it's a wonderfully researched, beautiful, History of an important time told through a very specific lens. So that's Graham Viney's last hurrah. Graham's doing tours at the moment, so you'll hear lots of interviews with him, see him on TV, etc. And then the Barbara King Silver, which I did mention was coming briefly a few months ago, is now here. I actually saw it on a bookshop shelf this morning, so it is available today. Um, it's Barbara Kingsolver's new novel, Unsheltered. I place it as number three behind I Have Poisonwood Bible as my favorite Barbara Kingsolver, The Lacuna as my second favorite, and Unsheltered has now taken the third spot. The two parallel stories connected by a single house in the wilds of New Jersey up against a mountain hillside in this kind of bizarre community that had been set up in the early 1800s by a family to be a utopian type community. And you've got in the present day the story of Willa, who's a journalist, an ex-journalist who's just been retrenched, but who's trying to write freelance in order to uh, just make ends meet. And you have the story in the 1840s set in the same house where Thatcher Greenwood, who is a teacher who rather likes Darwin's new theories of evolution, and he's trying to somehow incorporate them into his very specific view of the world until the moment that Darwin published. Um, and... I, I suppose the themes of the book are, so Willa 
in her late 50s. She had imagined that like her parents, you would work hard all of your life and then you would be able to retire. At 60 or 65, you'd be able to stop working. You could put your feet up. You could enjoy the fruits of your labor. But unfortunately, the world is not like that anymore. It's set very much in Trump's America. It's a lot of tension, a lot of polarization. And yes, Willa doesn't have the life she wanted and she's in this house that is falling down and then you have Thatcher um, whose life is also falling apart but in oh well I'll, I'll tell you about Mary Treat after the ad break because no, we'll she's be a back. treat we'll be back with uh, Barbara Kinwood's uh, Barbara King, King Solver's book Unsheltered I've got Poison Wood Bible going through my mind at the same time straight after this ad break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM Welcome back to People of the Book on 101.9 High FM Tracy from Jonathan Ball is sharing her passion and enthusiasm for Barbara King Solver's Unsheltered with us Back I think I'm you. sort of completely losing myself in the telling of the story, and I hope everybody's keeping up. So they're the two stories, Willa's story in the present time, Thatcher's story in the 1840s. And Thatcher's a science teacher at the local school in this utopian community, or supposedly utopian community, um, which is now hugely divided along lines of religion because there are the... Darwin's supporters, and there are those who cling to their old worldview. And I was going to tell you about Mary Treat. So Thatcher's neighbor across the road is this wonderful woman who was actually a real-life character. You can Google her. She was a character, um, a genuine character. She was a scientist who kept up a correspondence with Darwin and all sorts of the top scientists of the day. And she lived alone. Um, she was an absolute rebel and a wonderful eccentric, and her particular passion was insects. Um, so she would go off into the swamps in the mountains of New York State slash New Jersey, and she would collect specimens of sort of hideous, creepy crawlies that certainly ladies of the day wouldn't have I, most of them would have been standing on the chairs squealing by my <laughs> imagining of it. But Mary Treat used to catch these creepy spiders. And there's a wonderful anecdote. And it's actually where you meet her for the first time in the book when she meets, meets Thatcher. But it is apparently a real story that she, she used to, she was also, along with insects, was interested in carnivorous plants. And there's a story of her sitting in her lounge for days at a time with her finger attached to a carnivorous plant, feeding the plant as if it was her baby, but feeding her baby with her blood. And that's when you meet Thatcher. She can't come to the door. She says, come in. And they become friends. But... Yes, the themes of the book, obviously with Barbara Kingsolver, you do have her themes of taking care of the environment. Um, This one, the politics of identity, the collapsing of the dream of the world that we once had. I, you know, like I, was, I was actually speaking about the new Francis Fukuyama book this morning, which is called Identity. 
and it made I, I was referencing his old book, The End of the World and the Last Man. And in End of the World and the Last Man, Fukuyama said basically after the Berlin Wall fell, this is it. With liberal democracy, we have now reached the pinnacle of what we can hope to achieve in terms of government for all of the people. And it's now... Um, it's, I've, see, I've left school in the 90s, so it, it always seems like it was yesterday, but it wasn't. But so what are we, 30 years later, liberal democracies are failing. And that's what this book is about. It's, it's about the ground beneath your feet, which is represented literally by this house that is collapsing because the foundations were never built solidly. The foundations of the world as we know it collapsing. And it is beautifully done. Uh, Barbara is... She's just has all of she has all of the words. I am so jealous of all of her words. So do pick it up. It should be on shelves today. And then another one that I did. I think I might have mentioned it briefly before, but I have to mention it again because I love it that much. And I think as a as a gift for somebody, as a gift for yourself. Um, I can't think of a nicer present. It's a book called The Color of Time, written by Dan Jones and featuring photographs by Marina Amaral. Now, Marina is a Brazilian colorist. Um, so she takes old black and white photos and she colorizes them. And it's become kind of a trendy thing to be doing at the moment. And with greater or lesser success, I've, you know, I've got old black and white photos from back in the day where they actually used to paint on the negatives. Um, so it's nothing new, but... I, for me, what Marina does is genuinely profound, and I, she's doing a lot of work with the Auschwitz Memorial at the moment. In fact, she's just gone to Auschwitz, and she's filmed a documentary. She's been colorizing photographs of the prisoners that are deeply affecting, and there is something incredibly affecting about looking at photographs that you recognize, having seen them in black and white, about seeing them in color, the immediacy well, it could be today. I've actually got a photograph here sitting in front of me, and it's um, a photograph of the pogroms in Poland. And I, it's it's just very different seeing it in color. And you see this little boy that could be your little boy, and he looks absolutely terrified. And behind him is a woman standing looking defiant. And somehow seeing it in color makes it, she could be my neighbor. And she does, as I say, a lot of the famous photographs. So... There's that wonderful photograph. You would recognize it if you saw it. I don't know that I can describe it well enough. Um, but it's during the Great Depression in America, and it's a mother looking worried, absolutely haggard. And, you know, she's a young mother because she has tiny toddlers clinging onto her. And the despair in her face is evident. And seeing her in color, oh, it's I, it's just something else, and there I, there are happy photographs, there are royal wedding photographs. There's um, that photo, famous photograph of Nelson Mandela as a young man with no shirt, with his closer beads around his neck. That's been colorized, and now it's not just the photographs, though. The reason I'm more passionate this time around um, is because I've now started reading Dan Jones's text because it's actually available. Dan Jones is a great new up-and-coming 
historian. He's written primarily about the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, but here he provides the text to Marina's photographs, and the stories run from 1850 through to 1960. So you're moving through the colonial period, through the World Wars. Uh, seeing the World War I photographs in colour is a punch to the gut. And he just writes, it would stand as a book without the photographs, it would stand as a fascinating history of the 90 years that are covered. Together in the book, it is it is just sublime. So that is The Color of Time. It's a huge, thick tome. You'll see it in bookstores. I think it released last week. And then can I quickly sneak... Yes. You can. See prayer. And I'm going to have to do reading again. It's a new, I'm, I'm really going to talk fast now. Um, it's the new Khaled Husseini. It's called See Prayer. And if you've seen it in the shops, you'll know that this is not a kite runner. This is not a thousand splendid sun. It's not on the mountain echoed. It's not a novel at all. It is, it's a letter. It's a poem. I was listening to an interview with Khaled the other day and he was saying that it had been motivated by seeing that terrible photograph of little Syrian Alan on that pebbled beach in Greece as he had washed up in his little red shirt and little blue shorts and perfect shoes. And Khaled had said that seeing the photo, the reason perhaps for him that it was so affecting, you didn't see Alan's face. So it could be you could for a second, it could be your child. You connected to the horror of the lives of these refugees. And he wrote this novel as a tribute, or this letter as a tribute to Alain. And it's a, a letter written by a father there in Syria. It's the night before they're about to get into the boats. And he knows this might be the last chance he has to tell his son a bedtime story who's sleeping on the beach and he's trying to tell him about his life in Mons what his childhood was like to take some of his history with him and well we know the end of the story the sea is not kind and I'm going to quickly read and then I promise I'll stop talking um, I look at your profile in the glow of this three quarter moon my boy your eyelashes like calligraphy, closed in guileless sleep. I said to you, hold my hand. Nothing bad will happen. These are only words, a father's tricks. It slays your father, your faith in him. Because all I can think tonight is how deep the sea and how vast, how indifferent, how powerless I am to protect you from it. All I can do is pray. Pray God steers the vessel true when the shores slip out of eyeshot and we are a fly speck in the heaving waters, keeling and tilting, easily swallowed. Because you, you are precious cargo, Marwan, the most precious there ever was. I pray the sea knows this. Inshallah, how I pray the sea knows this. It's just, I, it's the most beautiful book. And um, all proceeds will go to the UN Fund for Refugees. And Khaled has set up his own Husseini Foundation, which is also helping refugees. It's a beautiful present. The illustrations, watercolor paintings are very beautiful. And then I promise I will say. There, you can do one more book. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, then I'll, I'll just quick, I'll, I'm going to do two. Okay. 
just to quickly mention Melanie Walker's Garden Style, which is a wonderful gardening book to browse through. It's exceptionally beautiful, photographed by Connell Oosterbrook, who's one photographer of the year for Caxton a couple of times. And gardens, so it's showing you all sorts of different garden styles, bush gardens, meadow gardens. It's beautiful for inspiration. It's a lovely gift, um, again, for anybody you know who's a gardener or just for yourself. And then there's a recipe book called Foodies of South Africa. I won't say more than please go and look at their Facebook page and watch some of their videos. They are fun. They're kid-friendly. They're easy recipes. They're full of love and joy and heart. Things like stary, stumpy hot chocolates and pup and a pumpkin, um, galaxy donuts, wonderful cookery book by three Cape Tonian friends. And yes, you can find them on Facebook, Foodies of South Africa. And then I promise I'm done. Okay. Good Shabbos and thank you for having me. <laughs> it's our pleasure always. It was a great list and we really enjoyed listening to all of them. Uh, all the books that Tracy has mentioned are posted on our Facebook page. Um, there's pictures for most of the books, short little captions underneath, which give you a sense of what the book's about. And uh, they're all available, and uh, they make for a great, great, great list of reading. And uh, for the rest of the show, the books that I'm going to talk about. And there's a long list of books that I'm going to talk about. Because this is the people of the book. We have to talk about our books. We have to share Can the passion. Can I stay and eavesdrop? Please do. The, the first book that I'm going to talk about came out uh, a short while, quite a while ago, a few months ago. And it's all about advertising. It's called Frenemies. And it's by a man, Ken Orletta, who has a column in the New Yorker. He writes about the media, and now he's writing about the one part of the media that we used to have an absolute fascination with, the advertising industry. But it seems to have become less of an interesting segment of the media in the days now, in the age of social, social media, with Google and Facebook taking up more than 90% of all um, internet-based advertising in America. So Ken Orletta, a prolific media reporter and critic, has written a book where he's now making an attempt to put the advertising industry under the microscope and make it part of the way that we've central again to the way that the public views the, 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 the advertising industry. Frenemies is the epic disruption of the ad business and everything else. The title comes from a word popularized by Martin Sorrell, who was formerly the chief executive of WPP. That's the world's largest advertising and marketing holding company. He started to refer to Google as a frenemy of WPP in that they do business together they friends, and at the same time they compete against each other, which makes them the enemies. For those who wince at the characterization of the likes of Google, Facebook, and Amazon as frenemies of the ad industry, be thankful. Because according to Harvard Business, Harvard, Harvard Business Review, Sorrell used a different word to describe the love-hate relationship between the advertising companies and the tech 
Titans. He called them froes. That would be friends and foes, but uh, I think frenemy is actually a better word. Cyril is a principled figure in the book Frenemies, which seeks to rebuild interest in Madison Avenue by borrowing interest from Silicon Valley. It's not unlike how advertisers themselves borrow interest, hiring celebrities to endorse products or devoting ads to buzzed-about subjects like a royal wedding. Orletta posits that few industries have been convulsed by change as much as advertising, which, as a result, is facing fundamental challenges to its existence. It may be a mug's game to figure out which industry has suffered the deepest damage at the hands of Silicon Valley. But Oletta works hard to get us to care about the fate of ad folk, despite our diminishing interest in them or our distaste for what they do, because of their essential role as suppliers of the dollars that fuel the media ecosystem. If you follow the money, he writes, you'll understand the importance of advertising and the significance of the threats against it and maybe value it more or at least disdain it less. Oletta surveys the tumultuous, treacherous ad lads landscape through the framework of frenemies. Not only are Madison and Silicon Valley frenemies, but so too, he declares, are ad agencies and their marketer clients, agencies and media companies, traditional and digital media companies, agencies and consultancies like Accenture and McKinsey, and also agencies and software firms like Adobe and Salesforce.com, and perhaps most telling, advertising and consumers. So the whole industry is rivaled with frenemy relationships. The easier it becomes for the public to zip, zap through and avoid interruptive ads through innovative technologies like ad blockers and streaming videos, the madder and more anxious the mad men and advertising women grow. So this is Frenemies. It's a spotlight on the advertising industry written by one of America's great media writers, Ken Orletta. And the book is published by HarperCollins. It is available in the shops. I think people who enjoyed the miniseries Mad Men will probably want to update their understanding of the advertising industry for the, the 2010 to 2020 era. And Frenemies does give you a good insight into what's going on in the real money control room of the advertising of the whole media industry we'll be back with some more novels straight after this ad break people of the book on 101.9 high fm a few weeks ago i read an article in the economist about gangs in the cape flats and the phenomenon of high school kids running gangs that then start turf warfares with the long established gangs on the Cape Flats and I thought young you know high school kids running gangs this sounds so strange is this normal in organized crime is South Africa I don't know an, an outlier but then I got the book The Piranhas by Roberto Siviano it's published by Picador and this is actually not a new phenomenon, and it is not a South African phenomenon. It also exists in, in, in Italy, in Naples, and Roberto Saviano has written a novel 
based on this phenomenon in Naples. Now, Roberto Saviano is an Italian journalist. He wrote a non-fiction book chronicling the, the, the Camorra in Naples, in the south of Italy. It's called Gomorra. It was a massive bestseller both in Italy, where it sold over a million copies, and around the world. It was then the basis of an equally successful film. Also, when the book came out, the Camorra, the, the mafia in Naples, put a price on Roberto Saviano's head. So he has been in Harding, protected by the Italian police force for the last decade. Um, his book, Gamora, was very much, uh, I did this, I did that. I was listening on the police, uh, on the police um, communications about crimes happening in Naples. And when I heard there was a shooting, I managed to get on my motorbike and get to the scene of the crime when the police were there as well. It was a very, very immediate and very personal account of organized crime in Italy. This is a novel, and it in many ways is very scary because of the amount of youth-run crime in, uh, in Italy. In the weeks before the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin, on the 15th of August, there was a sh- Naples was experiencing shakedown time, one of three moments in the year when traders can expect their neighborhood mobsters to collect protection money. That, that month, four armed gangsters walked into a shop in the suburb of Monterosiello and demanded 5,000 euros. When caught by police, the youngest turned out to be aged 14, the oldest only 19. This is the grim reality behind the first novel by Roberto Siviano. The Piranhas, which recounts the misadventures of a fictional baby gang, a bunch of unpleasant louts captained by one Nicolas Fiorillo, alias Maraja. He's called Maraja because he eats in a restaurant called the New Maharaja. Like most of its real-life counterparts, the gang operates under the auspices of a Camorra, a branch of which has sentenced, as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Siaviono to death. The author likes the, so the author knows that readers of gangster novels like to be shocked and disoriented. He writes, a city like Naples or Mumbai or Kinshasa is ideal for this purpose. In Saviano's Naples, not even the playgrounds are safe. There's a scene in the book where the youngest member of the gang arranges for some Roma, that's the word today used for gypsy children, to raid one playground, taking the littlest kids off the rides and the seesaws, shoving other kids as they fell on their faces, frightening them and making them cry. He and some accomplices shoo away the Romas before demanding five euro ahead from the mothers, having their, you know, watching the children play in the park, to ensure that the the bullying children did not return. So this is the type of scenes that Roberto Saviano writes about in the Piranhas. So the the youth-led gangs on the Cape Flats mirror the the the, the youth gang the youth-led gangs in Naples. Unfortunately, this is a real phenomenon. It is pretty scary that it does exist. 
and it's now the subject of a literary novel, The Piranhas by Roberto Saviano. It's quite hard-hitting, not an easy read, especially if you are a parent of young children and you want the best for your children. Another book that Tracy has mentioned in the past, and my wife read it, and she absolutely, she said it was beautifully, beautifully written, echoing Tracy's sentiments, is Andrew Miller's Now We Shall Be Entirely Free. And it's an historical novel. It's written by a man who has more than 20 years of writing historical novels under his belt, but they just haven't reached the wider reading audience. He's just there under the radar, but he truly does deserve a much wider readership. Hilary Mantle says his writing is vivid, precise, and constantly surprising. It reads easily, suspends life until it is read, and is a source of wonder and delight. We're going back to 1809. It's the Peninsula War. The British are fighting in Spain, and one very damaged soldier, Captain John Lacroix, is sent home. He goes home to Britain. Off from Britain's disastrous campaign fighting Napoleon's forces in Spain. It's his story. It's, it's a road journey. It's also an escape from terrible things in the past. And he goes to England and from there he chooses to escape and not go back to the war which he's just been given temporary leave from. And he ends up in the Hebrides, the islands of the northern coast of Scotland. And he's being pursued. This it sounds like from the way that both Tracy and my wife described it, if you take Vermeer's paintings and you try turn them into words, you get the sense of word beauty, that literary beauty that comes off the words of the page in a book. That's Andrew Miller's Now We Shall Be Entirely Free. It's published by Scepter. And I just think it's the type of book that should be a breakout book for an author who's been writing and writing and writing for years and deserves a much wider readership. Now we're going to go for something totally, totally different. A book, uh, a fantasy, a fantasy book, um, a book that is the first in a series. So there should be many, many more. There should be two more coming out in the next few years. The, The book's called City of Lies. And the series is now called a Poison, The Poison War series. So it's a Poison War novel. It's, pub, it's written by Sam Hawke. And uh, it comes garlanded by all the greats in the, uh, in the fantasy right, in the fantasy, fantasy genre. The story is about a brother and a sister who are trained from birth to protect their ruler. They find their skills and their assumptions tested. Jovan and Kalina are noble-born siblings whose family has long performed a secret duty to guard the Chancellor against covert threats, especially poison. Jovan is the proofer, the preparer or tester of everything the ruler eats or drinks, aided in this task by his incredible memory. Kalina, his sister, should have had Jovan's role, but her physical frailty forbade it. Her determination led her to learn other aspects of spycraft from their teacher and uncle, Eton. Idealistic, good-hearted, Tane is their childhood friend and the heir to the powerful chancellor position. So we're dealing with families and people at the very, very apex of this fantasy world's society. 
When Eaton and the old Chancellor both fall to poison, Jovan, Kellen and Tane all thrust into responsibilities they thought were years away. The three friends must question everything they know about their world and each other as they struggle to solve the murders of their predecessors. Keep the city from falling to a rebel army, outward career politicians twice the age and survive ongoing threats on their lives. Tightly wound... An ever-escalating plot is complemented by the cast's refreshing nuances. Jovan is implied to be on the autism spectrum, and Kalina's training as a spy hasn't made her superhuman, just all the more conscious of her limitations. None of the main characters are terribly good at inflicting violence on other people, but must rely on their wits, charm, and moral compasses to overcome their more ruthless enemies. Even when magic comes into play, the story never loses its essentially human and relatable scale, making it stand out from more sprawling cinematic fantasy fare. So in in short, City of Lies by Sam Hawke is a well-crafted debut with believable political intrigues, solid world-building, and original characters. When it comes to fantasy, You can create any fantasy world. I think it's the interplay of people's personalities and political agendas that make fantasy into a really valuable genre in books. City of Lies by Sam Hawke, published by Bantam Press, ticks all the boxes. If you enjoy fantasy, look out for it. We'll be back with a few more. We've got maybe three more novels or two more after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And we are talking books. A book that I posted on the Facebook page last week, but I didn't get to it, is called Ponty by Charlene Teo. And um, quite rare for a debut novelist. She She gets a shout out from Ian McEwan on the cover of a book. He calls her book remarkable. And what makes it very interesting is Charlene Teo is from Singapore. Singapore is a famous country for law and order and for world-class port facilities and functioning cities. But we really don't hear that much about Singapore through books. There was the book Crazy Rich Asians, which was setting Singapore, which when it was made into a movie, puts Singapore and the wealth of the city on the world map but it's quite refreshing to see that there are other Singaporean writers who are now contributing to world literature every now and then as a writer sorry, the the book um, the book is set in Singapore and as I've said, and it involves two generations of Singaporean women in 2003, so it's almost contemporary Singapore, we're just going back 15 years, friendless and fatherless 16 year old Sue lives in the shadow of her mother Amisa, once a beautiful actress and now a hack medium performing seances with her sister in a rusty house when Sue meets the privileged acid tongue Cersei they develop an intense friendship which offers Sue an escape from her mother's alarming solitariness and Cersei a step closer to the fascinating unknowable almost forgotten actress Amisa 17 years later now in contemporary Singapore Cersei is struggling through a divorce in fraught and ever-changing Singapore when a project comes up at work a remake of the cult 70s horror movie series Ponty, the very project that defined Amisa's short-lived film career. Suddenly, Cersei is knocked off balance 
by memories of the two women she once knew, by guilt, and by a past that threatens her conscience. Told from the perspective of all three women, Ponte is an exquisite story of friendship and memory spanning decades, infused with mythology and modernity, with the rich sticky heat of Singapore. It is at once an astounding portrayal of the gaping loneliness of teenagehood and the vivid exploration of how tragedy can make monsters out of us. So this is a, a book set in Singapore looking at two generations of women Ponty, the mother of Sue, who was an actress but largely forgotten, although her, her cult form still resonates in the minds of people in Singapore. And then her daughter Sue and her daughter friend, her daughter Sue's friend Cersei, and the interaction between them over 17 years. Um, and I always like the idea of reading about a city or a country that's exotic enough that we just don't feel that we're part of that world and so Singapore is a very very interesting place in which to parachute yourself down through the words and the pages of a book and we've got two more books to get through but I'm out of time so <laughs> the producer is pursuing me out the studio we'll have to get to the other books next week we've had a full show this week and we uh, every book that we've mentioned today is has been posted on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for people of the book on 101.9 Chai FM. It should be your indispensable guide to good reading. Every book that we've discussed over the last two and a half years are posted on th that Facebook page. You can scroll up and down and find them. You can also go to the Chai FM web page our home page on the in, on the on the internet and look for podcasts scroll across to friday scroll down to people of the book and all our shows are available on podcast on our on our uh web page that's com, and it should be uh once again a great resource for the reading public to find the books that you know that you need to read. You just haven't located the name yet. You've forgotten the name. They're all there. Until next week, Shabbos, and keep reading.